This week on Punch Mountain, Walter Matthau stars as the inspiration for anyone who has aspired to be an action hero but hates getting up from their chair. Don't touch that third rail because we're watching The Taking of Pelham 123. Punch Mountain starts now. Hello and welcome to Punch Mountain, the podcast where we review action movies one by one to discover the definitive ranking of action movies. Not determined by us, but by the action gods themselves. We don't make the mountain, we just climb it. My name is Mac Blake, and I'm joined as always by someone who once took over a subway car with his personality, Mr. David Hara. David Hara, how the hell are ya? I'm doing well. I'm more known for taking over subway restaurants than subway cars, but uh, I do appreciate the accolades. How are you, Mac Blake? That was just a big fuck you to me, because you clearly, that would have been a better <laughs> intro than the one I cooked up. So it's like eight weeks in a row of sandwich references. No, no, no. I was surprised there wasn't a sandwich reference. I thought I'd meet you halfway. Uh, you know what? Meeting me halfway at a subway sounds delicious. Eat fresh. Thanks for our sponsor, Blimpy. Oh, no. We fucked up again. Oh, my goodness. Well, the reason we're talking about subways, uh, David, is because we're about to talk about uh, a movie called The Taking of Pelham 123 with Denzel Washington and John Travolta. Nope, Matt, 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 no, I hope huh? that's not true. No, this is going to be the original. See, uh, that's the remake uh, directed by Tony Scott and written by LA Confidential's Brian Helgeland. Uh, we're watching the original starring all your favorites, Walter Matthau, Robert Shaw, Martin Balsam. He was the detective in Psycho. Uh, so yeah, no, we're going we're going old school with this one, real old school. That's right. When did this movie come out? Seventy four. Seventy four. Now, whereas the nineteen seventy four version, I'm going to tell you right now, audience, Punch Mountaineers, it is a little action light in terms of <laughs> an action, being not an action movie podcast, and what it lacks in action, it makes up for in pure nineteen seventies New York City grime. This movie revels in its scuzz. Every New York movie in the 1970s revels in its scuzz. So yeah, this is uh, this feels right at home there. All right, let's get into it, David. This was your choice. What made you turn to Pelham 123, the original? Oh, gosh, Mac. It, it was a complete accident. It was, we were wrapping up the last episode. It was, hey, what do you want to do for the next episode? And this was the first thing that came to mind. Uh, to be honest, this has been on my mind for a while because I think between the two of us, I'm more inclined to gravitate towards like the origins of action or like the ancestors of action. So this has been on my mind for a while in terms of wanting to vet it and see if it would it would fit on the show. I didn't get a chance to vet it before I threw it out there as a suggestion for for this week's episode. But I'll tell you what, like this is a perfect place for it coming off of our run of, of guest episodes. And thank you very much to all of our guests. And thank you very much to our audience for listening to those episodes. But God damn it, Mac, if I can, if I can pull the curtain back a little bit, those were very long to record and listen to. Yeah. It took a lot of work to edit those things and they still ended up very long episodes, but uh, I'd say very fun too. Thank, yes. Thank you to all, to all of our guests. Super fun. Don't get me wrong, but uh, I, I do like my sleep, Mac, if anyone knows anything about me. So I, I wanted something that would be, like you said, action light. There's no way in hell we're going to talk about this movie for more than three hours. This is just a real quick, small bite. There might be six things that happen in this entire movie. So I'm looking forward to talking about it. Uh, so what are your opening thoughts going into uh, the original Pelham 123? Yeah, this is a super action light movie. However, I felt like it filled that same sort of action need because this movie is super watchable. Like at night... 
when I am tired, but I want to watch something. An action movie for me is the perfect choice. Well, you know, certain kinds of action movies, because even action movies that operate at a very high level of like cinematic intelligence, if you will, I still can choose to not enjoy them on that level and just be like, yeah, man, that got punched out of a car. But this movie, (laughs) Taking a Pelham 123, you know, I might classify it first as like a thriller or crime, but it is so well paced. And, you know, in terms of like suspense, it wasn't, you know, terrible to the point where, you know, I'm on the edge of my seat, but it was, it was gripping. Like I was invested the entire time, you know, from start to finish, great performances. And that kind of like, you know, uh, being done with a movie and go, wow, that was a lot of fun. Like that's, you know, what you might get out of watching uh, Speed, right? Or Prey. Well, in this case, I got that out of uh, taking a Pelham 123. So even though it is action light, do not worry because we are action hammers and everything looks like nails to us. And we will determine its position on Punchbound, the definitive ranking of action movies. But David, first of all, I was unaware of this movie until the remake came out. And then I was a rare description because the remake, as I mentioned earlier, Denzel Washington and John Travolta getting a late career boost, which did not even turn into anything. And it's like, oh yeah, yeah, this movie was a remake of one starring Robert Shaw. And I was like, oh, okay, he's kind of a, a tough guy, the, you know, Quint from Jaws. And Walter Matthau in the Denzel Washington role. That is weird. That is very weird. But I'll tell you what, you know, credit to Walter Matthau, because this comes in the middle of a three-picture run of crime movies that I happen to love. So if you ever get a moment, watch Charlie Varick, where he plays an aging bank robber, or watch The Laughing Policeman, where he and Bruce Dern play detectives who cannot find a lead on a murder case. So in this moment, in the early 1970s, this is maybe the best action star that the 70s Hollywood system has. But one thing that uh, that we like to joke about, Mac, when we're talking about older movies is how old people feel or how old people look in these movies. I think like Lee Marvin was 43 in The Dirty Dozen. Would you happen to know how old Walter Matthau was in this movie? Oh, my God. Um, <laughs> I'm going to make a legit guess. If you ask me based on just his looks, I'd say 55. 54. Very well done. Oh, okay. Nice. But then it's also like hey, man, you got a 54-year-old top-lining this action movie? Like, you could immediately throw out any ideas of, like, a foot chase or something or, like, a fist fight. Like, that immediately gets eliminated before you know anything about this movie. But all that said, this is one heck of a movie. I thought you were going to say he was something like 39 or something. Just like a rough, uh, no Botox in the (laughs) 70s. Or maybe not as prevalent. Yeah, Walter Matthau, it's funny because I know him from the Grumpy Old Men movies. And then, you know, occasionally I would get dragged to these like family friendly movies when I was a teenager. And he started in one. It was called IQ, Meg Ryan and Tim Robbins. It's like a meet cute. And the person playing the matchmaker, it's Walter Matthau as Albert Einstein. And look, I haven't seen this movie in forever. It was written by Andy Breckman, who worked on like what? Was he on SNL? I know he, he wrote uh, Monk. Yeah, he was on SNL for a while in the early years, but he is like the show creator for Monk or one of the main executive producers of Monk. So good for you, Andy Breckman. Yeah, my brain is bad now, so maybe I would enjoy this movie. But at the time when it came out, <laughs> I was 14. I just want to burn the movie theater down with me in it. So uh, this this movie actually healed a wound. I didn't hate Walter Matthau anymore after this. I, I don't know if I, hate is a strong word. Oh, but Dave, before we get into it, I have, I have one more question for you. Did you see the remake? You know, I had not up until the other day. I found myself with a few sick days. I was home from work and I was waiting to record this episode. So I figured, 
hey, why not? Because honestly, after watching the original, there was this lingering guilt in my mind where it's like, did I pick the wrong one? Could we have watched the remake and had more of an action experience? Before I say anything, have you seen the have you seen the remake? I've seen just the end of it. Okay. That movie is a whole lot of no good. <laughs> what I was hoping for a Tony Scott Denzel Washington movie was yeah. to ramp up the action. This movie really only ramps up the thrills. It really feels a lot like something you'd see on CBS on a Saturday night. It plays so much like a CSI, NCIS, like smaller screen type of action movie that mm-hmm. it really... I, I almost felt vindicated in my choice of the original. There's some Tony Scott, Denzel Washington collabs, which are great, right? We've already talked about Unstoppable. I love Man on Fire, which was also a remake. But there's some other work that they've done, which makes me want to throw a remote through a TV screen, Deja Vu, to, to come to mind. So yeah, not a guaranteed smash with those two, even though they're both uh, great. But David, you mentioned this movie as an action ancestor. I did notice a couple things that I was like, oh, uh, like like the names of the bad guys uh, in the, in this movie. That's right. So they're going to be colors. You know, Robert Shaw is Mr. Blue, and then you got Mr. Green, Mr. Brown, Mr. Gray. I think, if I'm not mistaken, this is the first instance in a crime or action movie. You know, I, I, I think the, the gold standard for this generation is going to be Reservoir Dogs that uses colors as names. But, like, this is the first time I remember seeing that. And something else that happens in this movie, you know, they use different cases to smuggle their guns onto the onto the subway car. I think Robert Shaw uses like a French horn case and then someone uses a uh, a flower box, which I believe we've talked about in an earlier episode, but this will be one of the first instances of that. So, even though this isn't a beat for beat, cut for cut type of action movie that we're used to in in the modern day, there is a lot of this movie that bleeds through into later movies. Yeah, all this movie needed was somebody climbing into down a subway manhole and jumping onto the roof of a passing subway car, and then just some of the speed soundtrack, and next thing you know, this is, this is, a, this is a banger, baby. But let's <laughs> get into it. But before we get into it, whoa, twist. I think it would help to clear up some common questions. If you search Taking of Pelham 123 on Google, the results include these frequently asked questions, so let's do some quickly provided answers. David, is the Taking of Pelham 123 worth it? I think that depends on where you find it. Was it on a shelf or on the ground? Mac, what is the plot of the taking of Pelham 123? Uh, it's a New York City in the 70s sucks. David, why is the taking of Pelham 123 rated R? Because Robert Shaw shows full bush. Mac, how many versions of the taking of Pelham 123 are there? It's right there in the title, idiots. 123. And they're all terrible. No, uh, this one's good. David, before we check into the story of Walter Matthau just trying to do his job, Let's check in with us. I'm not even going to do a, a wacky intro today because I fucking forgot to write one, even though we haven't, I've had a, I had a month to prepare for it. <laughs> it's a friendship check-in, David. Our friendship. How are you, David Hada? We are not unlike Walter Matthau in that we're just trying to do our job. We're just trying to get through this. I'm doing quite well. As you alluded to, it has been a while since we recorded. It has been a few weeks. I will tell you the story of one of those reasons right now. Uh, we were waylaid by a few days because I got hella sick, like stomach sick, like top 10 stomach tragedies mm. ever. I have no idea what caused it. Everyone in my household was okay, so we could eliminate any sort of flu or food poisoning, anything like that. It really just feels like my body said, hey, let's hit the reset button. Like I'm having too many snacks throughout the day. I'm having too many pillow dogs right before bed. 
that sort of thing. Like I gorged on Halloween candy a few weeks ago and I, my body never served any repercussions for that sort of thing. So I think one night in the middle of the night, my body said, no, no more. I, I was in bed next to my girlfriend and I started shaking violently, like shivering, like it was cold, but mm -hmm. I wasn't cold. I was hot to the touch. And so I went to sleep out in the living room just on the floor because I didn't want to bother my girlfriend. And then about an hour after that, it was Vomit Fest 23. It was like uh, it was like the Sam Raimi Doctor Strange movie, just reds everywhere, liquids everywhere. Oh, my goodness. And then <laughs> and then I was knocked out for several days afterwards. In fact, I think we had a recording scheduled. And in the 11th hour, I was like, I'm not even sure I'm going to be able to keep my eyes open. So let us cancel this. But uh, I'm feeling OK. I've learned no lessons. I'm having a nice drink right now. So I would like to apologize for the delay on my part. How are you, Mac Blake? It has been a very long time. Yes, it's, it sounds like I had a real stomach verse of madness. I just uh, really wanted to get that shitty piece of <laughs> underwhelming wordplay in. I've been good, David. You know, with our lives combined, it's kind of like they've just been like a Rube Goldberg machine of like mishaps. You know, like, oh, I'm going to... Mm -hmm. Uh, reach for this drink. Oh, it's spilled. Well, the spilled drink, I'll bend over to pick it up. Oh, I fell in some mud. You know, like it just, it kept going. <laughs> but I, back to movies real quick. Fuck my dumb personal life. <laughs> I had a realization, David, which is, uh, you know, we were talking about taking a Pelham 123. You asked me if I had seen the remake and I said, I saw the end of it because I was flipping around TV one day and it was on FX or TNT or whatever. That kind of thing where you like flip around you know, the, the channels, like if, if you have cable or whatever, and you come across like an interesting scene and you go, oh, what is this? I want to see the rest of this movie. That does not exist anymore. Mm -hmm. With streaming platforms, that avenue for discovering films, you know, is gone. However, David, it survives in one very important place, and that is bars. David, how many times have you been to a bar and there's a movie playing with the sound off, just like a TV in the background, you know, it's got the subtitles and you're like, what is this movie? A lot. In fact, you know, one of my favorite bars in Austin, rest in peace to nasties, was probably the best at that where they knew, hey, this isn't a good place to hang out and meet friends or have beverages. But by God, we're going to have Roadhouse on with no sound on the big TV. And you can just pay attention to that. Like it's 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 funny you mentioned that I, I was lamenting that the other day myself where I was watching the tail end of something. And I had this epiphany where I was like, oh, this is why TNT used to show the same movie back to back. Because if you caught the last 20 minutes of it, you're like, oh, what the hell is that movie about? You could watch it again coming up at 10 o'clock. Like, I do, I do miss that very much. And uh, I do miss watching movies in bars with the sound off. So if there's someone listening to this and you work in a bar or one of those sports restaurants with a million TVs, go ahead and take one of those TVs, switch off the game. There's probably like a million other you know, TVs showing whatever NFL or UFC thing is going on that night, and go ahead and program your own movie. You know what I mean? That is your movie theater, uh, industry worker. And you you got to, it's your duty now, because the the other defenses fell, the center did not hold. So it is now up to you to, uh, you know, put on, I don't know, uh, you know, Unleashed starring Jet Li, and be like, why is Bob Hoskins yelling at Jet Li? What movie is this? And then next thing you know, you're watching a, a Louis Letier action film. This is not a bad idea at all. I'm always looking for new venues to show movies or for people to enjoy movies. If you were to call it like silent classics and see if you could trick old people into coming to your bar. No, we're just watching Missing in Action with the sound off. Yeah, silent classics. 
Drinks up, volume down. There you go. All right, David, is it time to uh, catch our train? Mac, you better have exact change only. We're going in. All right, David, in case somebody is unfamiliar with the taking of Pelham 123, or maybe they've seen it, but it has been a while, just a level set. Could you give the back of the box description, please? You bet I can. Four ruthless men seize a New York City subway car, and the 17 passengers on board are suddenly caught in a perilous game of life and death. A $1 million ransom is demanded from the city with the terrifying assurance that failure to pay within the hour will result in the death of one hostage every minute. This sets the premise for the tension-filled crime thriller, The Taking of Pelham 123. Robert Shaw stars as the shrewd mastermind behind the hijack team, and Walter Matthau is the transit authority detective assigned to catch the merciless hijackers. On location filming in New York City, adds stirring authenticity to this explosive drama. 1974, 104 Minutes, directed by Joseph Sargent, rated R. Mmm, what a weird kind of final line choice there. On location filming in New York City adds stirring authenticity to this explosive drama. If this is a product, I would expect that to be kind of like off to the side, maybe like that text would be in a starburst. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, uh, low fat. You know, it's just like one more little selling point, but not the point of it. I don't know. But it, it is funny that they they do indeed ask for $1 million, like they're fucking Dr. Evil. If you're going to ask for $1 million, is 1.2 out of the question? You know what I mean? I mean, because even the passengers themselves say it in the movie where it's like, I'd like to know how much I went for. And it's basically, oh, you went for one seventeenth of a million dollars. Like, there's some wiggle room with, with just the sheer numbers. So like, with, with the, the amount of people on that subway car, two, two and a half million, shoot for the moon on this one. Yeah, or maybe you ask for 1.2 and you work it down to him. I mean, clearly, I don't I think they were successful. I think it was, because uh, it says the taking of Pelham 123. I think the bad guys might have won this one, David. We'll, we'll find out. How does this movie start? Mac, this movie starts in New York City. A character all its own. In fact, think of it as the fifth criminal. Some big city jazz music plays as we watch our four armed robbers board the downtown train at different stops. Mr. Green, played by Martin Balsam. Mr. Gray, played by Hector Elizondo. Mr. Brown, played by Earl Hindman. And Mr. Blue, played by Robert Shaw. While they overtake the conductor's booth, we meet their adversaries, the elite warriors of the New York Transit Police. Lieutenant Zachary Garber, played by Walter Matthau, leads a tour for visiting Japanese delegates, while Lieutenant Rico Patron, played by Jerry Stiller, reads the newspaper. Another boring day as usual. That's right. Frank Costanza himself, Mac. Jerry Stiller is in this movie. Good for you, Jerry Stiller. So let's, let's start off with, you know, frankly, one of the things I remember about this movie and one of the draws of this movie is this cast. I mean, you're talking about the top liners of Walter Matthau, Robert Shaw, they're going to be the hero and the villain. But then you also have Martin Balsam. You know, I mentioned him from Psycho. You have a very, very young and uh, slightly hip Hector Elizondo. Like, this is the old guy Expendables. If if it's 1974 and I'm a middle-aged man, I'm losing my mind at this cast. Hector Elizondo, you mean the voice of Commissioner Gordon in the Lego Batman movie? The very same. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it's like they spun some kind of uh, like 70s wheel of like actors. And it was like, tick, 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 Matthau and tick, 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 Robert Shaw. Let's stick them together. But yeah, it was uh, it was it's a fun mix. But David, there's one guy in particular that seemed familiar and I could not place him. And that's Mr. Brown played by Earl Hindman or Hindman. I'm going with Hindman. I feel like I've heard it that way. I mean, he's dead. What's he going to do? Chase me around? I don't know. But I did not bother to look it up, David. But you told me that where is he from? How would, how would most people maybe know Earl Hindman? Mac, you might recognize the top of his head. He's Wilson from the show Home Improvement, the the, the Tim Allen vehicle. But like, 
you know, to see him in this movie, first of all, to see his full face, but also to see him as this heavy was wild to me. Yeah. What would be an equivalent today? Maybe like, uh, what's the kid's name on uh, Modern Family? Manny? Yeah, yeah, a little Manny, you're right. Yeah, if, if like 30 years ago, Manny was a bank robber at a movie that didn't mind murdering <laughs> some people. Pretty nuts. But we see these people are, are bad guys here. We see them boarding the New York subway uh, like one by one. And the first guy we see, we actually don't see Robert Shaw at first. We see Martin Balsam, right? Yes. And uh, we start meeting these these people, including Mr. Gray, played by Hector Elizondo, who's a bit of a creep. Yeah, so right off the bat, you're seeing these people board one by one. Martin Balsam's this old guy. Robert Shaw's this old guy. But then you see Hector Elizondo, and he's not even flirting with the female passengers on the train. He's, like, goosing them and giving them, like, God help me, the licky lips, kind of. Like, he's licking his lips passionately or, like, seductively. You know, seductively, the way he seduce people. In fact, I had to warn uh, my girlfriend, the bombshell, he, even though we had seen a long time ago, I was like, okay, don't forget, there's one guy on here who's going to get his permission slip punched immediately. We just got to ride out this movie. It's not going to be a satisfying death, but he will have to turn in his permission slip at some point. But man, Hector Elizondo makes it really hard to root for these criminals in this movie. And I generally like rooting for criminals in movies. In the permission slip you're talking about, of course, his murder permission slip, which allows him to right. be murdered. But all these bad guys, you know that something's up, David, because it's four dudes and they're all dressed alike. Like, they're all wearing trench coats, they're all wearing fedoras, they all have glasses, they all have mustaches. Some of them look like actual mustaches on people, the others look like they're having fake mustaches. But I guess in the end we find out they're all fake. But finally, we see the fourth guy, it's Robert Shaw, and he's waiting to get on the same subway car. He's waiting in a different stop. And as he's sitting on the subway platform, uh, there's a dude walking up, you know, looking pretty fly for 1970s. Thick collar, uh, you know, open uh, shirt front or leather jacket, maybe a leather coat. Oh, that thing goes all the way down, and they get yourself a nice hat. Everything's coordinated, everything's matching, and Robert Shaw's looking at him. And the guy turns to look back at Robert Shaw, and he says, "Hey, dude, ain't you never seen a sunset before?" And not only is that a great line, I love that line, and I can't wait to use it in real life. But the fact that Robert Shaw also enjoys that line, like he's not like, oh, I'm, I'm going to kill you or anything, or just you wait. He has this smirk about him. The exact opposite of the feeling I had with Hector Elizondo where it's like, I can't wait for Hector Elizondo to die. I can't wait for Robert Shaw to find his groove. You know, I'm hoping he meets some dudes on the train who teach him how to pop and lock, teach him how to throw some cardboard down. And this movie never even happens. It's sliding doors. I don't get that. What does that mean? Ain't you never seen Sunset before? Because the man is so beautiful, it is not unlike staring at a sunset. Okay. <laughs> I'm on board now, I guess. But Mac, we made mention of New York City as the fifth character in this movie, the New York subway system in particular. Or have you ever been on the New York subway system? Yes, I have. My only celebrity sighting on the New York subway is Zachary Quinto. And I did not bother him. I got to tell you, I, I'm not quite sure, you know, what are, what are your feelings about the about the subway system? Did you have any feelings whatsoever? Or was this like, take me from one place to another? I mean, man, if you go to any other subways in any other cities, like, you know, I've ridden on trains in Paris and even Toronto. And it just, it's kind of tragic that the New York City subway is such a like, you know, uh, don't make eye contact with me kind of thing. You know, even the Chicago trains, I felt, were, like, more welcoming than the New York City subway. Uh, but, you know, at the same time, you know, what a great system for getting people around in, in big cities. I wish, you know, Austin had 
that kind of public transit. But yeah, it's also a nightmare. I mean, there's a reason why New York City comedians uh, won't shut the fuck up about the subway is because it is, uh, is, is weird as hell. That's the thing. No, I'm right there with you. I'm I'm a sucker for public transit. I the past two cities I've lived in, I picked because they had good public transit. But having been to New York and having been on that subway, it's super depressing because it is this grand system. I mean, for them to connect the New York area the way that it does is really impressive, but you can also tell no one has put funding toward this since like the 1950s or something and like everything is just such decay and disrepair. I don't know why I'm bringing it up. It just always bums me out. Well, David, I mean, this movie is part of Hot Bummer Summer because it's almost like a part of an ad campaign to discourage New York City tourism. They make the city look terrible. Like everywhere anyone goes, you know, people are yelling. It just seems like a fucking nightmare from start to finish. But yeah, and the subway doesn't seem any better. In fact, we're going to get to it later in the movie when we get into like the politics going on with the city. This is not a popular city to be in in the 1970s. Uh, so I'm looking forward to talking about that. Yeah, this is before, of course, the Punisher became active and, and cleaned it up. Thank you, Frank Castle. <laughs> Rest in punishment. <laughs> Rest in punishment. He died. Yeah, he died. He got killed by, uh, I don't know, Daredevil. Sure, why not, kid? Uh, but, but speaking of our, our heroes from yesteryear, Mac, we talked about him. Jerry Stiller is in this movie. What are your thoughts on Jerry Stiller being in this movie? Well, the way we meet Jerry Stiller is somebody comes up to Walter Matthau and they go, oh, these are some, these are four guys from Tokyo. These are the Japanese delegates. They're in charge of the Tokyo uh, subway system. And they, they came to learn from you. And Walter Matthau showing them around and he doesn't think they speak English. And so he's like calling them stupid to their faces or whatever, and just being a real dick. And then later on, when this crisis happens, the Japanese, you know, transit ambassadors, if you will, they're like, oh, we'll see ourselves out. Thank you so much. And like, whoops, I was being rude. And uh, they do speak English. But yeah, that's right. The 1980s don't have a stranglehold on being xenophobic against the Japanese. The 70s say, hey, we want to get in the game too. But they walk past the desk of Jerry Stiller. And I, I don't know what he's doing. He's like reading a racing form or something. And Walter Matthau's like, oh, this is Jerry, St-, you know, not Jerry Stiller, whatever it is. This is Rico Patron. He's uh, part of the squad here. And uh, Jerry Stiller's like, you know, can we wrap this up? You're bothering me. And it's funny. I thought Jerry Stiller was great in this movie. And I don't know if I would have thought that in the 1970s if I had seen this movie. But knowing this kind of like loud performer he is in like Seinfeld or, um, you know, I don't know. He was in King of Queens and also uh, Zoolander. Uh, you know, seeing him this very kind of subdued, you know, almost almost a tough guy role was it was fun. Yeah, I, I agree. He he fit in perfectly. It was not knowing very much about like Stiller and Mira, you know, his his comedy duo with his wife Anne Mira. I I can't imagine it looks anything like this. So good for him. Good for him for branching out and, and fitting in just fine in this movie. Yeah, it was a lot of fun seeing him. That is faux show. But David, uh, the big hand says it's go time. And all the, you know, the bad guys here, the hijacks team, as they were described at the back of the box, they make their move. You know, they take over the subway car, they disconnect it from the other cars behind it, and then they fucking just like stop it in the tracks. This car is now stalled, which causes havoc in the transit um, authority, like see different offices being like, that car stalled, what's going on? Who's this? Just like everyone just chewing at each other like little rats, making New York City seem like a terrible place to live. Uh, but yeah, well, this this car is, is stuck and, and transit crew is like, what is going on? That's right, Mac. And with the Pelham car stalled in the tunnel, 
Mr. Blue radios into the command center to proclaim that he has taken one subway car and 18 hostages and wants the city to cough up $1 million in an hour, or Mr. Blue and his crew will shoot one hostage every minute for 18 minutes. While everyone else only seems to care about the trains running on time, Lieutenant Garber tries to figure out who would hijack a train and how. Yes, and this, of course, is a train that was going, its uh, end route was uh, Pelham Station, I guess, and that's why it is train Pelham 123. It's not because mm-hmm. it's uh, some dude's name. Well, I mean, maybe it's probably some dude's name at some point. Yeah, it's like uh, Mayor Pelham uh, uh, back in the 1800s or something. But this is where we're going to meet Kaz Dolowitz, uh, played by Tom Petty, P-E-D-I, uh, for people who thought it was going to be the rock star. So he's going to be essentially the man on the ground. Like, he's running the trains, making sure there's no rats on the rail or anything like that. In fact, we're introduced to him. Because he's coming down to the station or this little bullpen where some workers are because one of the female employees dropped her wedding ring down the toilet. And of course, that's Kaz Dolowitz's uh, opening to just be terrible about women. Like, ah, we let a woman work here and already they're dropping rings down the toilet. And uh, is his permission slip signed in his introduction? Like, I know he's not a bad guy and I know we're supposed to not root for the murder of innocence. But at the same time, did you get the impression that you were going to be happy to see this guy die? Uh, no, he did not stand out to me as like, oh, this guy's going to get murdered because they're all like this. Yeah, they're all just like rats. Everyone in this movie is just gnawing and like just chomping at each other. David, it's kind of like movies where there's a town that's like, uh, it's like Earth 2 or something like that. And I, I know there's better examples out there, David, but <laughs> the ones I have are, are from recent movies I've seen and they're not great. Like in the Super Mario Brothers movie, not the animated one, but the one with Bob Hoskins, they go to this underground uh, world where like everyone's a criminal. Like they meet an old lady and she tries to rob them. Like everyone's bad. Or like in the Trolls movie where they go to Bergen Town and everyone there is fucking sad or whatever. That's like what this is. It's just like you almost like, yeah, bad guys, why don't you take money from these people? What are they going to spend it on knives to slit each other's throats? It just makes it seem like a... (laughs) A barrel of rats that needs to be drowned. And so the fact that this one guy got murdered, no, he did not stand out as any more deserving of a, a silencing. I don't want any of these guys to die. I just want them to shut the fuck up. Uh, so no, I, I, I was surprised when he got murdered, which he, he will later on. I almost wish the supporting characters in this movie had a growth arc where they all learn that their lives aren't the most important things in the world. We're also going to meet uh, in this chunk of the movie, we're going to meet Frank. Frank is going to be the guy who runs the control center or the command center. He's going to be played by Dick O'Neill. And throughout this movie, all he wants is for the trains to run on time. He's got rush hour coming in four hours. So I'm going to yell every scene I'm in until I get my way. Yeah, the movie's like almost too realistic in that regard. Because our hero here, Garber, played by Walter Matthau, it's not like he rises to the occasion because he's like, this evil must be stopped. He rises to the occasion because that's his fucking job that day. And where that is, you know, it's kind of inspiring to have someone like an unexpected hero step up. You just get the feeling that like it's more of a headache than it is like, uh, oh, I don't want these people to die. It's more like just have this problem go away. I mean, I think at the end, he definitely gives a shit. And he definitely gives a shit more than fucking Frank, who uh, we will talk about uh, as we go on because he is uh, terrible. But yeah, the bad guys uh, stop the train and... Like, we're holding you hostage. But this is New York City, David. So when uh, when Mr. Blue uh, announces that he's got criminal intentions for this uh, subway car, wh- what happens? 
everybody on the train laughs at him. You know, he even has a gun pulled out. He's got like one of those, basically like a machine gun, like a, like a Tommy gun almost. And he's like, all right, I'm not kidding around, but they're still laughing at him. And even the passengers trying to negotiate with him where it's like, hey, I know you've got, you know, ransom business. I know you're trying to get a million dollars, but like, can I go? I've got a very important appointment that I got to get to at one point. You know, this uh, single mother is like, surely you wouldn't mind if the children go. And it's like, you've never dealt with a lot of terrorists, have you? You never dealt with a lot of people with guns who just want money and not anything to do with you. I think the pastors think like, oh, he's just a common petty criminal like us because we all live in the bad future from Back to the Future too. But uh, <laughs> it, it, I don't realize at first that he's a different class of criminal. And so the lady's like, yeah, surely me and my kids can go. And he's like, no, you stay where you, you are. Which, uh, why not let the kids go? He's dead serious. Like, look, if I don't get money at a certain time, I'm going to kill these passengers. He'll kill someone in just a minute to prove his point. Do you really want to kill children? Is it that he really didn't care about killing children or was it like, oh, the, the children will be better leverage for getting the money? They're like, oh, uh, you know, I'm going to kill some people and some of them are going to be children. So you better get that money faster. What do you what do you think? I have to imagine the latter now that you bring it up, because, you know, the movie does a pretty decent job of not making Robert Shaw bloodthirsty. In fact, that's I, I think that's the role of Hector Elizondo. He's there to be the wild card of the loose cannon for Robert Shaw to rein in. But like, you know, Robert Shaw does a really good job of being singularly minded. He's, he is serious. You know, if, if the demands aren't met or if they are late, he will execute one passenger, one passenger every minute for, I guess, 18 minutes until he runs out of passengers. But he's, he doesn't come across as monstrous. You know, he's, he's intimidating. You know, he wants the children to behave he sort of talks sternly to them, but he never like raises a hand or like tries to swat at them or anything like that. So I really think it was just leverage. And also, if you let the kids go, maybe there's like a diehard situation where they become heroes and and save the day. But Mr. Blue and his men, they take over the train. They radio into the command center where Frank is trying to get these trains running for rush hour. But Garber is there to, to take the case and he's taking down Mr. Blue's demands. You know, Mr. Blue says... Listen to me carefully. Make sure you get this to the letter. Pelham is under our control. We are armed. We have no scruples about killing. We want $1 million in cash. It is 2.13 now. We want this all done no later than 3.13. You have an hour. And then Frank in the background is like, keep dreaming, maniac. And it's like, yeah, he's a maniac. He took one of your subway cars. <laughs> Why don't you go ahead and defer to him for the next hour, you fucking idiot? Like, you don't have the most important job in the world. Or maybe you do for the next hour because there's lives at stake. Yeah, and speaking about those lives, I guess this is before the United States does not negotiate with terrorists. Or maybe it was. Maybe it's because this movie took place before we branded any criminal as a terrorist because uh, they they negotiate with him right away. He's like, I want a million dollars. I'll kill these people. Like, oh, we're working on it. <laughs> like, there's no, like, fat chance, buddy. I mean, I mean, Frank says it, but he's not on the fucking, you know, the uh, radio with with Mr. Blue. Yeah, this movie could have used a Jerry Butler. This movie could have used, like, a tough talker. It's like, no fucking way, mate, or whatever. It's like, okay, now we know you mean business. Yeah, a Gerard. <laughs> but, Mac, let's go to the mayor's mansion, where the mayor, played by Lee Wallace, is too sick with the flu to negotiate with anyone today, let alone terrorists. With cops and crowds gathering outside the subway, the city leaders debate whether to pay the ransom. While Blue refuses Garber's request for more time, Mr. Gray tests out his gun on poor city loudmouth Kaz Dalowitz, played by Tom Petty. 
so we get to the mansion. We get to, you know, we, we see the mayor of New York and he's he's in bed. He's getting treated by a nurse who's giving him a shot and making sure he's he's well. And, you know, she's already just emphasizing, hey, you need bed rest. You need to, you know, take care of yourself. And he's just yelling at her like there's nothing I can do. Oh, there's one more thing you could do. Get out. And it's, you know, like you said, everyone in this movie is terrible. And now we can add the mayor to that list of terrible people right away. Yeah, I don't know if it's here or later on. He mentions his approval rating is like 20%. And then <laughs> later on, a crowd starts booing for no reason. And then a cop in charge goes, oh, the mayor's here. So everyone hates this guy because everyone hates everything. Uh, but down below, under the ground where the subway car is, we learn something about Hector Elizondo's character, Mr. Gray. Yeah, so we're passing the time. We're, the clock is ticking. We're waiting for 3.13. So uh, we're, we're having some conversations. Mr. Green is checking in on Mr. Blue. And Mr. Blue is like, I, I don't want you to leave Mr. Brown and Mr. Gray alone. Mr. Gray being Hector Elizondo. Oh, Mr. Gray is Hector Elizondo. I said Green. Apologies. But uh, Mr. Gray apparently uh, was thrown out of the mafia, as we're told by Mr. Blue. Yes, I trust Mr. Brown. I do not trust Mr. Gray. I think that Mr. Gray is an enormous, arrogant pain in the ass who could turn out to be trouble. I also think that he is mad. Why do you think they threw him out of the mafia? Oh, terrific. Mac, I didn't know people got thrown out of the mafia. My understanding of the mafia is that they get rid of people. And they don't like, all right, you're fired. Don't come back. No, this is like a great one-line, like, throwaway descriptor of people. Like, uh, like if you're talking about an action hero and like, we got a man inside. Who is he? He's a former Green Beret who's got uh, kicked out because he's too crazy. And you're like, oh, okay. But yeah, the idea of like, this guy got kicked out of the mafia. It's like, whoa. Because that tells us, David, this guy's nuts. But also, yeah, that's not a thing. <laughs> they don't <laughs> sit anyone down and they go, hey, listen here, shoot see. Uh, first of all, your nickname right there, that's the problem. You're too trigger happy. Like, we appreciate everything you've done. Uh, so, you know, please take this generous severance package and you, you may, re you're, you were fired from the mob. No, you get, yeah, you get shot. You get murdered. It doesn't work like, like, oh, I got ghosted. They just stopped giving me assignments. Yeah, the, the mob is in fear of him. Like, oh, please lose our number. Do not call us anymore. So the other trains, the abandoned cars, there's a, I don't know if it's a conductor or some other kind of train employee, but like he's... He was, he's been ordered at gunpoint to like lead the other passengers like back down the tracks. And here we see, you know, Kaz Dolowitz who's like, hey, gotta see what's up with this feckin' train. He goes down and he, he passes the fleeing people. And he's like, I wouldn't go down there if I were you. And he's like, yeah, yeah, I'll dump him on it or whatever. Tell him about the fucking guns. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. oh my God. The fact that he wasn't like, hey, there's dudes with guns down there. Do not go down there. The fact that he, I forget what he said, but it was like something vague, like, uh, you know, be careful or whatever. It just was a, a shocking uh, absence of communication. Uh, wow. Wow. I'm with you, but I have to imagine, knowing the small amount that we know about Kaz Dolowitz, I have to imagine his employees don't like him. You know, as the conductor is leading the the passengers back to the, back to the station and Kaz Dolowitz runs into them, he's like, what are you doing here? You're supposed to be the captain of the ship. And the, like, there's some, like one passenger tries to start telling him something and he's like, ah, lady butt out. So I wonder if in that moment, the conductor was like, man, I hope you get shot. Not knowing <laughs> he's minutes away from actually getting shot. I feel like he, he would probably dismiss anything he was told. 
Oh, hey, hey, Mac, you, there's some bad stuff going on back there. There's a guy with a gun. Yeah, it's some bad stuff going on in my house. Who doesn't have a gun in this city? Fuck off. <laughs> no, they're going to shoot you in the head, Kaz. Yeah, yeah, so's my wife if I'm home late for dinner. Eat my shit. But Kaz makes it to the train. He manages to shout at Mr. Blue. He's like, why don't you grab a goddamn aeroplane like everyone else? Because hijacking in the 70s, I don't know if you know, was rampant. Everyone was hijacking in the 70s. But uh, Mr. Gray does not want any of it. He shoots Kaz dead. And, and what, is, uh, what is Mr. Gray's remark after that? Oh, this, this honestly is one of my favorite parts of this movie. Oh, well, hold on. <laughs> You're talking about what Mr. Gray says in a, in a cocky way to the supposed leader of the group, Mr. Blue, right? Yes, that's correct. Yeah, he turns and he goes, got us on the scoreboard. Meaning like, yeah, we knew we were going to kill somebody. It was bound to happen. Now, some of the other uh, robbers, like who's the guy who won't stop sneezing? Who's that guy? Oh, that's Mr. Green. I, f- I forgot to mention Mr. Green has a cold he woke up with. The other thing about Mr. Green is he seems to be like a subway expert. So he seems like less criminal, more like inside man. When Mr. Green is like, you told us no one would get hurt. <gasps> this guy's killing people. But when Mr. Gray shoots Kaz, he's like, stop where you are. And Kaz keeps walking. He's like, uh, I'm not telling you again. Like, you, you better stop. And then I forget what Kaz says, but right before Mr. Gray like opens fire on him, he says, I warned you, stupid. And then <laughs> I got to say, just thought, I warned you, stupid, <laughs> shooting him. Very funny. Uh, <laughs> it's just a petulant way to murder someone. If I can ever be the last thing anyone ever hears or sees, I warned you, stupid is a pretty good way to leave your mark on somebody before they die. <laughs> yeah, it's like the complete opposite of like a uh, a suave James Bond style kill line. You know, <laughs> it wasn't like, James, uh, what happened to the bad guy? It's like, he was a dummy, so I shot him. Like, it's not going to, James Bond isn't going to say that. Uh, but that, that's what that's what this guy said. But one of the cops who is in the subway tunnel, he sees Kaz get shot. He calls in to the command center. He lets them know that Kaz is dead. And I think Frank remarks, is like, Kaz? Fat Kaz? And it's like, well, what a wonderful legacy to leave behind. I'm glad my friends love me. <laughs> but they also mentioned that there is an undercover cop aboard the train. And there's an exchange here where Frank asks, well, is that, that undercover cop, is it a man or a woman? And Garber is like, I never even thought to ask. So keep in mind for the rest of this movie, there's an undercover cop on this train and nothing gets done about it. I, I'm, not, I'm not sure if that bothers anybody else, but it did bother me. Yeah, I honestly forgot about it in the middle of the movie because there's never any sort of like tension centered around it. I feel like there's moments where this undercover cop like could have intervened or something, but like never did. They really bided their time. I mean, it does, he does get to, it's a man and he does, you know, of course, come into play later and he plays an important role in, in bringing down the bad guys uh, finally. But yeah, he's, he's not in any fucking hurry. One of the benefits of having watched the remake is it eliminated most of my punch-ups. You know, watching this movie, watching the original, I was like, you know, I wish we kind of had gotten to know the passengers a little bit better. Maybe a little bit more of their story so we feel some empathy for their situation or we feel some emotional weight that they're being held hostage. But then watching the remake, I was like, the less I know about these people, the better. So I'm, I'm, I'm okay with just being fed little dribs and drabs about the, about the passengers here and there. And speaking of these passengers, you know, Garber's on the phone. He's trying to get this money. He's trying to, he's working hard to save these passengers' life. Because look, when he woke up today, he didn't even want to talk to some uh, very polite Japanese men. And now he's got a fucking hijacking. He's, you know, he's out of his depth, but he's doing his best. And then he, this guy, Frank, he just is 
got not one shred of empathy in him. And in some moment, he's like, these passengers are going to die. You know, I'm trying to save these passengers. And then how does Frank respond? Frank's response to this, to the, to the attempted rescue of these passengers is he says, screw the passengers. What the hell do they expect for a lousy 35 cents to live forever? Hey, man, wow. Frank Turbo sucks in this movie. Oh, I know. <laughs> oh, my God. Seriously. What was the name of the guy? He's still around, of course. He's our fucking lieutenant governor, Dan Patrick, not the sportscaster. Yes. And he was talking about how COVID restrictions should be lifted so we can have our freedom back. And somebody interviewed him like, what about people that are at risk, like elderly populations? And he was like, I think our elderly people would be willing to die for freedom. So these people do exist. And no, you know, whatever freedom fucking means. But the fact <laughs> that Frank is like, these look, people got to get to where they're going. These passengers can fucking die. It doesn't matter. Frank sucks. He sucks, David. We all got to go sometime. Why not pay 35 cents for it? But look, they're, they're trying to get this money. A million dollars is hard to scare up in, in the 1970s New York City. Uh, you, you can't just ask uh, Alec Baldwin to, uh, <laughs> I don't know. Why was he my New York City rich guy example? He's got like a million kids. But Garber's trying to negotiate here with, with Mr. Blue and, and get a little bit more time for this uh, ransom delivery. Yeah, in fact, let's play some audio here of, of an exchange between Garber and Mr. Blue. It is 2.24, Lieutenant. You've got 49 minutes left. Be reasonable, will you? We're trying to cooperate with you, but we can't do anything if you don't give us enough time to work with. 49 minutes. We're dealing with City Hall, for God's sake. You know what a mess of red tape that is? 49 minutes. Look, fella, we know how to tell time here as well as you do, but we aren't going to get any place if all you do is repeat 49 minutes. 48 minutes. Yeah, all right, all right. Uh, we'll get back to you soon. I really like this. I really like Robert Shaw in this movie, to be honest with you. I like Robert Shaw in pretty much everything I see him in, but in this movie, I like him a lot. I wish they had used him more, if they, if that's possible. Like, I wish we had had, you know, some monologues or something just, you know, to let... Robert Shaw eat. But the dynamic here where Garber is panicking, you know, he's trying to be cool, but you know, time is ticking. There's 49 minutes left. Hey man, this isn't, you're asking me to part the sea here. I'm not going to be able to do it in less than an hour, but Robert Shaw is just sitting there doing his crosswords, reading his books. I I really like this. I really like Robert Shaw in this role. Yeah, he's great. You know, it's a shame his uh, career got cut short after he was eaten by that real shark just to get that footage that Steven Spielberg wanted for, of course, for the movie Jaws. But we we cut back to the mayor's to the mayor's mansion. He and his staff are deliberating, and they're trying to figure out: is it worth it to pay the million dollars? It's 1974 in New York. We don't have a million dollars. And the mayor's wife, played by Doris Roberts, she's advocating for the mayor to pay it. And someone on in the conversation says, "Pay the two dollars," which I enjoy as a line. I, I, are you familiar with that line or that punchline at all? No. Mark? It's an old vaudeville bit where essentially the the thrust of it is this guy, you know, does a small thing like he litters or something or he spits on the ground and he's going to get a small fine. But instead, his friend, the lawyer, tries to, you know, smooth talk his way out of it, but he just keeps getting his defendant in worse and worse trouble. And so it finally culminates in the punchline being, well, just pay the two dollars. I don't know why I'm bringing this up in this context. I just always like when people reference vaudeville routines from a hundred years ago that makes one of us david (laughs) (laughs) but at the end uh they agree right the new york city the mayor decides we'll we'll pay the ransom uh i have my my popularity is in the toilet and i guess i don't want to be seen as being uh 
you know, kind of eh, to the deaths of 17 people. So they, uh, City Hall says, yes, we will pay. Yeah. In fact, there is a really fun line here that Doris Roberts has where she says, well, you know what a million dollars will buy you? 18 sure votes. Like, hey, man, you save those people's lives. You think they're not going to vote for you? I thought that was a nice button to the scene. I enjoyed yeah, it quite a it bit. Such a shame that two of those people were kids. And they, they can't vote. So that was probably 16. But Matt Garber gives Mr. Blue the news that the city has agreed to pay the ransom. But inside the car, tensions are heating up between Mr. Blue and the hothead Mr. Gray. While Garber and Patron work on putting together a list of fired motormen, Garber asks for more time to deliver the money. When Mr. Blue refuses to budge on his deadline, Garber says screw it and lies about the delivery to Mr. Blue, even though the squad car carrying the million dollars flipped over and missed the deadline. So this is going to be more waiting, you know, more crosswords and books for Mr. Blue. But we're also going to have some some conversation between Blue and Green. We're going to learn a little bit of backstory. We're going to learn that Mr. Blue used to be a mercenary. Uh, he used to make 5000 a month uh, when he was working for, like, some African rebels. And he, he stopped doing that because, quote, unquote, the market dried up. But still, like, he couldn't find more work doing that. Yeah, I guess, you know, if you have a, a downtime, I don't know what was going on in 1974. Was there a recession? Probably something. And he just was like, I guess I'll just uh, become a hijacker, pay some bills. I mean, that would have, you know, maybe, they, maybe we were robbed of a prequel series. How did this guy, <laughs> why did this guy need all this money? It didn't seem like he was trying to like prove a point or anything. That's what we need. But also, you know, it's a million dollars divided four ways. So it's 250000 even, you know, when the when the passengers do find out that the city's going to pay the ransom, one of the passengers asks, hey, how much are you getting? And and Mr. Blue says, we're getting a million dollars for you. And the, the passenger seems really underwhelmed by that. But yeah, this money doesn't really, I guess the juice doesn't really seem worth the squeeze at this point. I really wish they had asked for something almost impossible, like astronomical, because the hardest part in this movie or the most tense part is not the collection of the money, it's the getting of the money from the bank to the train. Like, we never really sweat the million dollars at any point in this movie. Yeah, you're absolutely right. The amount does not matter. It's the distance. Because we see them, like, counting the bills, and like, come on, count that fucking money! And then they finally get it, and they load it into the car, and now the car has to, like, drive across town, and they, honestly, like, if they get there, it's gonna be just by the skin of their teeth. And, uh, yeah, this was a, a tense scene. This was a tense scene. I enjoyed it a lot of, you know, I, I made a joke where it's, it's a thrilling money count, but it is, you know, time is ticking. You know, you're watching the, the bank employees go through the bills. They've got those automatic sorting machines. No one thought to pocket a few bills. Like, you know, he's not going to sit there and count every bill. He's not going to count the full million. What if he ends up getting like 920,000? Is, is that so wrong? Yeah, a real blown opportunity by those money counters. You know, you're really... You really fucked it up, a bank employees. <laughs> Maybe they had already pocketed some bills that day and they go, ah, I don't want to get too greedy. What if this was like payback where, you know, it, the the amount, like the stakes are so small where it's like, okay, he just wants his $42,000. What if this movie isn't so much about the million dollar ransom? It's about the bank employee who pockets $600 and just wants to get home with it. Secondary plot. Save that for the director's cut DVD. But as the bad guys are waiting for the money, tensions inside the hijack team... I would just say hijackers, but back of the box, call them hijack team. We just call them the color guard because they that's what they are. Tensions are running high amongst the color guard members. You know, again, it's a lot of hurry up and wait. So what does Mr. Gray do? He hits on one of the ladies on the bus. Mr. Blue tells him to cut it out. And he's like, oh, come on, this 20 bucket trick hooker. I could do this job and hump that broad without missing a stroke. Ooh. Oh, man, I cannot wait for you to die. 
But, you know, Mr. Blue is stern. You know, he's a professional. He's like, don't do that. I'm giving you an order. And then here comes Mr. Gray retorts, says, blow it out your ass. How did these two guys meet? Because they do not seem like, was there no job interview? It makes me want to buy old issues of Soldier of Fortune. Because my understanding of Soldier of Fortune magazine is that there's a back of the magazine for stuff just like this. Where it's like, I need three people for a job. No questions asked. BYO gun. But like, I have no idea where these two people specifically where they met like you know you we joke about a prequel series i want to know how like how mr green met mr blue i want to know how mr gray got involved i want to know how he passed his job interview i want to know mr brown's up to like there's a lot of questions left unanswered with this with this sparse movie we know like in reservoir dogs michael madison's character i think it was mr blonde he didn't go nuts until the job got started so maybe mr gray was like all smiles during the original interview and then when he got a gun in his hand, he's like, yeah, I'm a sociopath. But I don't know, because it seems like he would not have been able to hide his true self for five fucking minutes. But maybe he was hard up for uh, for gunmen because uh, you know, he's part of the crew. But meanwhile, we do have the money count. The money count is done. They've loaded the, the bag of money into the car. The car is racing to the subway stop. This is cool. This this is finally something in this movie. I don't know where we are in this movie. About 40 minutes in, probably. But this is finally something that feels like action, and it's just a car racing to its destination. I thought this was neat. Yeah, I mean, I'd go ahead and call this an action set piece, th- this money race. And then, you know, they're they're trying to, to dodge out of the way, and the clock's ticking, and oh, are they going to make it? And then sure enough, this fucking car flips, and it looks like they're going to miss the deadline, and they're going to execute the passengers, and Garber's like, oh, God damn it. It sucks because they really have no way of no. Wait, hold on. What? They have no way of no. I'm just going to lie to him. And he's like, oh, the money's there. And they're like, oh, great. We, we will wait for it. So, yeah, that was a an easy solution to. I mean, I, that might have felt like it undercut the tension, but uh, it didn't feel that way to me. It didn't. But I also think it was just the dearth of possibilities in 1974 where, you know, of course, they're not going to have technology or surveillance or anything to circumvent this obstacle. So all Walter Matthau had to do was just lie. Like, yeah, why didn't you do this from the very beginning? Why didn't you just tell me he had a wrong number when he called in? But no, I, I thought it was very satisfying. Yeah, he could have easily been like, we've agreed to the ransom. We're having to uh, fly in with a helicopter. Here it comes now. And he takes a dollar bill and like, dip, 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 like stretches it out <laughs> to make a helicopter sound. Just really, just really go to town. Like an old radio play. Yeah, he just has like his Foley work just laid out, like his, yeah. his wood blocks, his carpet ba- samples or whatever. Yeah. He's got uh, two coconut shells. He's like, oh, no, here comes a horse. Clop, 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 clop. But Mac, the money gets delivered to the train and Mr. Blue has specific instructions for Garber regarding the car's supposed getaway. Frank keeps complaining about wanting his trains back and Garber has had enough of it. While Mr. Blue and his men rig the train with some kind of go-fast device, Garber hits the streets to figure out how the terrorists are going to make their escape. So when the money gets delivered to the train, they're not just sending two cops along with the bag and they're like, here you go, you know, uh, God bless, uh, live, laugh, love. They've uh, set up a bunch of snipers along the route. And there's also one guy who, I don't he really doesn't play a major role, but he's, he's a cop who went to investigate and he's kind of like hiding in the subway tunnel, just sort of giving updates on the guys, but not really, not really doing much. But these snipers, you know, they have, uh, they're somewhere hidden in the dark and they got their guns trained on the subway car. And then these two unarmed policemen who are swinging a flashlight as instructed by Mr. Blue, they're approaching the train. 
the subway car. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, a gunshot. Yeah, one of the snipers just decided to pop off for no reason. Like, truly no reason. The movie does not explain why. It just It's just something that happens. This is another reason why I'm glad the remake exists. Because watching the original, I was like, man, I really wish they'd explained something. Just tell me why, you know, did someone get hot-headed? Did someone get impatient? In the remake, a rat crawls up one of the sniper's pant legs, and he shoots off his his rifle a little bit early. Uh, so I'm glad that that does not exist in the original. But they get the money to the train. You know, it's it's one bag. It's banded the way they wanted it. At the de- the denominations are the way they want it, and it's set up so that the four terrorists can reach into the bag and load up their pockets. You know, they're they're wearing a lot of coats. They're wearing a you know suit, vest. You know, anything with pockets that they can fit bundles of cash into and it's at this point in the movie i realize there's not even an inkling of double cross going on with this movie like for as bad as we think mr gray is or as quiet and unassuming as we think mr brown is no one has any plans to double cross anyone this feels like a missed opportunity in a crime movie well david if you steal a million dollars and divide it among four people but you decide to kill one of those people your share increases And it does not seem like that ever crossed the mind of Mr. Gray. Like later in the movie, when they're like, all right, we're we're taking off our disguises. Everyone, you know, hand in your guns. Gray keeps his, not to protect himself from people who obviously want him dead, his own crew, but just like in case he runs into some cops. So yeah, I don't know if that's part of the reason he got, quote unquote, thrown out of the mafia, but he sure doesn't view these obvious threats as threats. But David... After the sniper uh, goes off, someone has the gunshot, you know, there's, they exchange fire, the, the bad guys and the police. And after things calm down, you know, Mr. Blue, he seems calm, but he's pretty pissed. And so the other remaining train employee, conductor, I don't remember, who's on the train car, he very calmly like escorts him uh, to the edge of the train. And then Robert Shaw, Mr. Blue, shoots him in the head. And after he shoots him in the head, because, you know, earlier Mr. Gray was like, I prefer to do my own killing kind of implying that Mr. Blue doesn't want to get his hands dirty. And Mr. Blue is like, oh yeah, I'm going to shoot this dude, you know, basically point blank. And then stares at Mr. Gray. David, I haven't seen blue-gray tensions like this since the United States Civil War. Thank you for that. (laughs) But Mac, one more more thing about this subway car and one more thing about the delivery of the money. When the the terrorists get the money, they dump it on the floor to to split up, you know, for, for each of them to pocket their share. And this is another moment where I realize, wow, the hostages don't have any plan of their own. You know, you're sitting there long enough. The outcome seems pretty clear. No one's using nonverbal communication. No one's trying to communicate, hey, on the count of three or when there's money on the ground, we all go. Like that feels like another missed opportunity. I don't know how feasible that is, but I would have liked to have seen some sort of uprising. See, these fucking New York City car rats, I thought for sure that one of them would have been kind of the opposite. I thought he would have been like, Hey, uh, I'm sick of society too. Hey, let me join your crew. I'll be a, I'll be the fifth criminal. <laughs> like, uh, he draws like a mustache on himself real quick with a marker. And he's like, yeah, give me a gun. I hate these other people. So no, that did not surprise me that they did not have a plan. It did surprise me that the undercover police officer, we don't know who he is at this point, or she, it's a he, but <laughs> that there's no sort of like, hey man, you know, uh, I'm a cop. Let's rush this one guy. The, the fact that he doesn't, try to, um, you know, uh, have an insurrection here. It is, it is surprising. Look, the times are tense. People are dying. Let's cut back to the the nerve center here of, of the good guy's efforts. 
And you know, just just for some moments of empathy. Oh no, because Frank is still just like fucking hurry up. I don't care if these people die. Blah blah blah. Just more shit from Frank. And finally, Garber's had it. Garber has had it. In fact, I'm just gonna let Garber do the talking. Let's play some audio here. Hey Garber, what's going on? Do I get oh, my trains back now or don't I? Huh? You don't. Not yet. Jesus. Do you realize the goddamn rush hour starts in an hour? Can you shut that for a minute and listen to me? I got a new set of instructions. I don't give a rat's ass to your fucking instructions. I'm not lifting a finger to help the killers of Kaz Dolowitz. Hey! Now you listen to me, you dumb son of a bitch. You don't do what I tell you, you'll be having dinner tonight with Kaz Dolowitz. Jesus Christ, what are you... So, Mac, you know, I went back and forth on this one. In the moment, I didn't quite have a markout moment. But as I sat with this movie and sat specifically with the line, you're going to be having dinner with Kaz tonight if you don't don't shut up. Basically, like, hey, Kaz is dead. You're going to join him if you don't shut up. It was nice to see Walter Matthau finally bow up a little bit and finally anger up. And it was nice to see him take it out on Frank. This will, in fact, be my first markout moment of the movie. Yeah, you want to talk about characters signing their please murder me permission slips. Frank, right here, his total lack of any concern for human life. If Garber just started, like, out of frustration, beating Frank to death, I think people would have been like, hey, Garber, stop, sort of like not not really caring if he did. But no, he, he doesn't hit him. He comes close. But that's the thing with these New York City cockroach people Yeah, in the 70s. You flip on the light. They scatter. As soon as Garber is like, Frank, do you want to go? You want to catch these fucking hands, Frank? Frank, what does he do? Uh, cowers. Pisses his pants. Fucking, he didn't really in the movie, but I'm talking about, you know, uh, uh, metaphorically. Uh, Frank sucks. No, he was soaked with piss. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. Really just douse those dockers or whatever he was wearing. But meanwhile, you know, for Frank to be so impatient about his car's And for him to want this thing to be over so quickly, no one is doing their job, or I guess no one is doing any sort of critical thinking as to the machinations of the terrorist plot. Because there's a moment here, you know, the car is is by itself. It's already untethered from the rest of the trains on the Pelham line. It's just one single car. And so at some point it starts moving. And and Garber even radios to Mr. Blue's like, hey, why are you moving? And Mr. Blue's like, I'm creating some distance between those snipers that you have set up. I don't trust you and I don't trust them. So of course that makes sense. But what Blue and his men are really doing is they're parking next to a service exit, a very convenient service exit for them to get off this train and go back into the city. Is nobody else aware of the service exit? I was Kaz Dolowitz the only one who knew this, this tunnel system? Yeah, why weren't the New York City Police Department sending uh, more snipers or a fucking SWAT team? Did that not exist in the 70s? down these service exits to like surround the train car. They were real laissez-faire about this. Look, Mr. Blue didn't even like lie as far as I can remember. He could have been like, don't try to come down here. We have uh, the whole place booby-trapped, you know, something that he they couldn't prove. Uh, or maybe like the cops wouldn't want to take the risk. He didn't even, you know, say that. He just, these um, transit cops were like, uh, everyone back off prematurely or whatever. But after they get the money, they tell the, uh, the transit crew like, okay, we're going to ride this train all the way to the end of the line. And I don't want to see any cops. I don't want to see any stops. So go ahead and give us like green lights all the way. Cause they explain later in the movie, like, oh, if you're going too fast or if you blow a stop, uh, they have like automatic brakes that will basically like stop your train car. 
But if you turn those off, this thing's going to keep going. It's going to keep going fast. And they do something, the bad guys, something to the uh, wheels of this train car? I don't know, Mac. So we see Mr. Green and, and Mr. Blue supervising, but Mr. Green is setting up like a pipe rig. He's outside of the train hooking up a series of pipes that he brought in his case to the the conductor car or the conductor booth. So essentially these these pipes are rigging the train to circumvent that fail safe, you know, to keep going even though there's no hand on the master switch like there's supposed to be, even though, um, you know, there's supposed to be things in place to stop the car. Mr. Green is setting up this rig to go around that, but I really wish the movie had done some explaining. You know, credit to the movie for just allowing us to buy this flight of fancy, like, oh, okay, he's setting up something. But as someone who does a podcast, uh, meticulously breaking down every action movie, I would like to know what that rig does and what purpose it serves. Yeah, I mean, I imagine that it was like, oh, this rig has something to do with the train uh, going too fast. But it was a lot of work to like set up that shot and, you know, like plan the props and, and whatever. It's a lot of work just to give the audience like, oh, they're doing something like that's it was a little. Yeah, definitely a little too vague. But the bad guys are like, hey, uh, we're going to we're going to start this train and, and we're going to go to the end of the line where they'll be like, I don't know. I don't even remember a boat waiting for us or whatever they told him. But is that really the case, David? What's going on here? Well, Mac, I'll tell you, the Pelham train is in motion. There are green lights all the way to South Ferry, but the crooks aren't on the train. They're going to escape through that service exit, but not before they change out of their coats and hats and into other coats and other hats. When Mr. Gray won't give up his gun, Mr. Blue shoots him, and Mr. Brown gets shot by the undercover cop, who was on the train the whole time. Mr. Blue goes to kill the cop instead of escaping, and that's when Garber catches up to Mr. Blue. Mr. Blue doesn't want to go to jail, but he does want to go to rail. Nice. The third rail, electrocuting him before he can be arrested Let's go with the end of this movie. So we finally see that undercover cop. That's nice. I'm glad we see him jumping out of the train as it's getting away and as the crooks are getting away from it. Yes, the bad guys here, the, the master stroke in their plan is they are wearing uh, vests with a lot of pockets on them. <laughs> that is how they plan to smuggle the money with their, their mini pocketed vests. But finally, this undercover cop, uh, you know, he, he busts out and he's, he's following them from behind. And who who gets shot first, the cop or Mr. Mr. Gray? Oh, um, the cop shoots Mr. Brown. Mr. Blue knocks out the light to shoot back at the cop. Meanwhile, Mr. Gray is like, nuts to this, I'm out of here. But David, meanwhile on the train, passengers are starting to realize something's up because this train's going fast. That's right. They finally get wise to, I guess, the plan that they've been privy to in the past hour. In fact, I'm going to play some audio of one of the passengers. This is probably one of the best conveyances of tension or fear in the movie like, I, I just love you know as we're heading towards the end of this movie someone is finally acting like this is an action movie like someone is actually acting like this is a high octane thriller I just thought this was a really great delivery. Yeah, and you get the sense that it's like, oh, maybe if we worked together, we could have opened the door. But no, they're just all just pawing at it. Like, again, rats trying to get out of that hot barrel or whatever. You know, when you when rats get into barrels that get too hot? Yeah, the classic thing. Yeah, that hot barrel. Yeah, yeah. Barrel of rats. Yeah, of course. So we see the bad guys now, and they're another master plan, David, is they're, uh, they're taking off their, 
their outfits, their little matching cute guy outfits. And sure enough, they're all peeling off their fake mustaches. They're all taking off their coats, switching into other coats. And you know they're doing this because Mr. Blue, their leader, is like telling them what to do. He couldn't have just been like, all right, change into disguises. He's like, coats off. And at some point he goes, reverse hats. Okay, we get it. Left foot forward, right foot forward. Now you're walking. Like, uh, uh, you guys didn't talk about this at all? He's the one with the military history. He's the one who is going to be regimented. He's going to have this down to the letter. So when I say change coats, you're going to change coats, reverse hats, you're going to reverse hats. This all is very silly. Like, I enjoy it for, you know, as a moviegoer, as someone just watching an hour and 44 of just silliness. But it's not like they're changing out of black coats and putting on white coats or anything like that or changing out of fedoras and putting on cowboy hats. It really is like, okay, take off your brown newsboy cap. Put on your dark blue newsboy cap. Like, none of this helps. And also, on top of everything else, you know, the mustaches are fake. But Mr. Gray, this entire movie, has been rocking some serious mutton chops. Those are his. Those are factory issue. So at no point are they like, all right, you're going to shave those mutton chops. That's the most recognizable thing about you. I thought for sure those mutton chops were fake. And so when they were real, I was stunned. But yeah, you're... Your disguise hinges on, uh, you, you just said it, David, of course, not uh, changing to a different hat, just reversing the hat you're wearing. It's like if Clark Kent was like, oh, I'm going to change to Superman, so I'm just going to uh, wear my glasses uh, upside down. It's like, no, you're still, what? You're Clark. Like, that wouldn't that wouldn't <laughs> fool anybody. But they're like, all right, now everyone give me your guns. Uh, Mr. Blue says that, the leader. And Mr. Gray's like, I'm not giving you my gun. No way. In case something goes uh, wrong up there, I'm going to hold on to this gun. Now, excuse me while I uh, continue to underestimate how much you want to kill me, Mr. Blue. And then what does Mr. (laughs) Blue do to Mr. Gray, David? Mr. Blue gives him one warning. He's like, stop right now. Mr. Gray says, blow it out your ass. So Mr. Blue shoots him, shoots him right in the chest, uh, staining one of the packets of of money. But uh, so long, Mr. Gray, rest in peace. Yeah, you know, sometimes in like action movies, like people get uh, knocked out by one punch. Or they'll get shot, and it's almost like, oh, I guess you shot that guy's off switch. If you got shot in the stomach, you would die a terrible slow death. But in in movies, it seems like, you know, people just die super fast and quietly. But Mr. Gray dies fast because, as you could tell, Mr. Blue with one shot shot this dude in the fucking heart. It was, (laughs) I think I said, dang, out loud. Because it was, for an almost bloodless kill, it was pretty intense. Yeah, you know, the credit to the movie for that, it doesn't, you know, by not killing too many people, it does make the weight of each death a little bit more. So, and especially the setup of, you know, Gray essentially calling Mr. Blue out. Like, you're too much of a chicken shit to do your own killing. So when Mr. Blue does his own killing, uh, you know he means it. And it's it's tremendously satisfying. And the cop who I, th- I think was already kind of shot or winged or, he know, he passed out. Didn't he like trip and fall? No, I think he was winged. Well, because he jumped out of the train and he sort of stumbled. But I think Mr. Blue clipped him a little bit and Mr. Blue was walking over to give him the death blow. Well, I'm not even talking about that part because the cop kind of wakes up and he shoots Mr. Brown. And he shoots Mr. Brown in the back, right? Is Mr. Brown Hindeman? Right, yes. And actually, and, and Mr. Brown, I mean, I don't know if he like shot him in the spine or something, but he has this kind of like great slow death where you see him get shot in the back and he's like, and just kind of like, just suffering. But honestly, you know, compared to the super quick death of Mr. Gray, the fact that this guy died a, you know, relatively slow and very painful death uh, was pretty cool. 
Yeah, no, I, I agree. Um, again, going back to just the feeling of, you know, the lack of deaths in this movie, the lack of murders or carnage in this movie makes it all feel all the more important. Earl Heineman did a really good job of, of selling that death. It was his moment in the movie. So of the four criminals, Brown is dead. Gray is dead. That leaves Blue, the leader, Robert Shaw, and Mr. Green, of course. And he, Mr. Green was like the non-combatant. He was like the guy who was like not really a bad guy. He was the inside man, the subway expert. In fact, Garber the whole time was thinking like, I bet one of these dudes, I, I bet he had to know the subway system because these guys seem to know too much. And he tells Jerry Stiller, like, look through the files of every subway employee that was fired who might be fucking mad enough or, you know, still sore enough to, to do this. And so, you know, things seem to be going to shit here. You know, Mr. Blue, he's going to go take care of this undercover cop once and for all. But Mr. Green, he amsgrace. Mr. Green amsgrace with Mr. Blue's blessing. Mr. Blue is like, all right, leave. We'll meet at the rendezvous point. What the rendezvous point is, we never know. We just see Mr. Green back at his house later. But the next time we see Mr. Green while Mr. Blue goes to take care of the undercover cop, we see an exterior shot of the city and we see Mr. Green emerging from one of those like grates, you know, just those grates on the ground, those subway grates. And no one says a word. Everyone is well aware that there is a hostage situation going on in the New York City subway. But meanwhile, Mr. Green can just do to do walk out of a subway grate unnoticed. That's New York City, baby. We keep our eyes forward and we don't pay attention to nobody. <laughs> well, David, you forget the 1970s New York City had a real chud problem. So yeah, exactly. It's like, you know, keep your eyes to yourself. Don't just mind your own business. You never know when a chud's going to come up from the sewers and, and, and chomp you. But uh, Garber is now in a police car and he's driving to like the South Ferry. And he's like talking to the cops there. And he's like, wait a second, something's wrong here. Something's wrong. Why did they stop? What are they doing here? You know what? I think these guys got out. I think they're not on the subway car anymore. And so he's like, turn this car around. Uh, in fact, one of the other police officers was like, I told you, bitch. He's like, you were right. They turn the police car around. And as they're driving back to where the car is stopped uh, over there by those grates, they pass that cop car that was flipped over earlier during the money chase. They pass that car being like hoisted back onto its wheels, being like flipped over on its right side. And I thought that was a, a cool touch. And I, it kind of made me wonder if this movie was accurate in that sense, like, oh, if they're driving from, I don't know what it is, 82nd Street to the this stop, they would pass that same location again. So we got to show the car, which, I mean, if that's the case, because, I mean, as the back of the box said, they filmed it in New York City. That's some authenticity. But David, do you remember uh, do you, the movie Grindhouse, specifically Death Proof? I know you do. You bet I do. There's a sequence when they're driving down South Congress Avenue. Austin natives, if you look in the background, they pass like the same building five times. <laughs> like it's like, oh, there's Wero's. There's that restaurant Wero's again. Hey, look, there goes Wero's. Boy, they're boy, are they driving that same 18 feet again and again? There's Wero's again. I think that's why people in New York are such assholes. I think that's why the rat people, because they're so tired of movies misrepresenting uh, the uh, the geography of their city. Oh, fair enough. So Mr. Blue is standing over the New York City cop and he's like, well, you know what? The mayor will go to your funeral, which is a oh, cold-blooded thing to say. But before Mr. Blue could pull the trigger, hear a voice behind him, and it's Garber. Garber's like, you know, like, stop, freeze right there. Oh, Garber must have his hand in his coat pocket, pretending it's a gun. And then Garber steps forward, and he does have a gun. I was like, oh, he does. He is carrying, which I have to say I was surprised that this fucking transit cop who's just, like, works a desk the whole time. I mean, I guess if he was going in the field, he might have, like, 
gotten his gun out from like his bottom desk drawer. Okay, never mind. I, I, I talked myself into it. But I was surprised to see Walter Matthau packing. I assumed just because there's the word cop and transit cop. So I was like, yeah, of course they give all cops guns no matter what they're doing. I also kind of assumed maybe he took it from Daniels, the the cop he was riding with at some point. But uh, but yeah, no, he's packing heat. And so Garber approaches Mr. Blue and they have uh, a kind of a fun exchange. Officer, I suppose you couldn't use a quarter of a million dollars, could you? Quarter of a million? Oh, no, thanks. My account says that I've accepted enough for this fiscal quarter. That line about, like, you know, his accountant says he's whatever. I mean, I, I thought that was actually really funny. Yeah, I, I like Walter Matthau. It's funny, you know, as we're coming up on the end of this episode, essentially, like, we're almost done talking about the movie. We really haven't talked about Walter Matthau that much. I enjoyed him in this movie. I thought he was a really great sort of center of gravity, for lack of a better term. Like, I like that the action revolved around him. I thought he was a nice person to follow throughout this, but... You know, him, Robert Shaw, basically all of the characters in this movie, I would have liked to have seen them been more clever with their dialogue or with their lines. Um, this is just a glimpse of what Matthau could have done. I still liked it. I still enjoyed the line very much. Yeah, he's a very low-key hero. It's like if the movie Die Hard did not have John McClane and it just starred Sergeant Al Powell. Like, uh, he just was on the radio the whole time. But yeah, it was a... You know, you really get the feeling of like he he's having a bad day at work and he he's trying his best. And if he went in there guns blazing, this might have been an action, more of an action movie. But uh, as it stands, it definitely, you know, contributed to the suspense of, of the film. And so Garber has Mr. Blue at gunpoint. And Mr. Blue says, do they execute, you know, currently in this state? Meaning, you know, do they have the death penalty? And Garber says, no, not at the moment. Because in my mind, I thought Mr. Blue was asking, because I thought he was going to be like, oh, do they have the death penalty in the state? And if they do, well, then I'm going to die either way. So I might as well like lunge for your gun. I might as well like, even though you got me uh, you know, dead to rights here, I might try to escape. And so when he's told by Walter Matthau that they don't execute, I thought he was like, oh, well, you know, I'm facing maybe life in prison. That's better than dying. I guess I'll surrender. That's what I thought. Sure. Or at the very least, you know, well, if I'm already damned to this uh, to this fate, maybe I'll shoot at you. Maybe I'll do something rash. But no, he's just asking to size up his options. And when he hears that there is no death penalty in the state of New York, he says pity. He puts one foot on the third rail. He puts another foot on another rail. And that closes the circuit. He becomes a conductor of his own. And he smokes to death. Uh, he electrocutes himself. This is an all-timer, Mac. This is going to be a mark-out moment for me. I love Robert Shaw. To see him, we're going to have to put a, a, a screenshot of this uh, when we post for this episode. Just like gritted teeth, hands out. You would have thought he was like frozen in ice. You know, like like someone just flash froze him. It is something else, but I sure did mark out. It's awesome. David, we've had a lot of kills on Punch Mountain, right? This is episode, what, 47? You know, we've seen a lot of people die, David. This is the first time a death has made me literally drop my jaw. <laughs> I was so stunned by it. The fact that this guy cooked himself, God damn, it was a serious, what the fuck? I did not see that coming. Yeah, I'm marked out here too. It was amazing. It was insane. If you had not seen this movie, I kind of hate that I just told you about it because uh, it, it really, I didn't, again, I thought he was saying like, oh, I guess I'll, you know, live. But really he was asking, 
because he's like, oh, I don't want to live my life in prison. I'd rather die. So I very casually, well, yeah, cook myself with the electricity of the third rail. An insane death, but an all-timer, you're right. Yeah, especially, you know, as we've said already, with the dearth of deaths in this movie, you know, it's a fairly bloodless movie. You're not even seeing a lot of gun deaths. So to see someone fry himself when you're not expecting it, oh man. Yeah, no, I, I cannot say enough amazing things about this scene. So maybe the filmmakers thought that audiences at this point would be too stunned to enjoy the movie. So what happens next? Walter Matthau bends down to this uh, long-haired undercover police officer, and he goes, uh, don't worry, miss, the paramedics will be on their way. That's a paraphrase, but the fact that he called this long-haired police officer miss, okay, we're doing jokes now, I guess? It just seemed pretty stunning. Like, imagine if after Avengers Endgame, Thanos, like, snaps away everyone, and, uh, you know, Spider-Man's like, ah, I don't want to die, Mr. Stubbs, cold, Mr. Stark, whatever he says. Then Tony was like, ugh, dibs on his uh, snacks or something. <laughs> like, it was, it was that level of like, all right. I'm sort of backhandedly impressed at the script for doing a callback to this joke. You know, because they're setting it up throughout the movie. We know there's an undercover cop on, on the train. Is it a man or a woman? Oh, gosh, I didn't even think to ask. You know, whoever this might be, man or woman, you know, we've got somebody on the train. So to have it pay off with the punchline of... uh We'll have an ambulance here in no time, miss. Good for you. It was, it was, you know, it didn't draw too much attention to itself, but it was just this nice pressure release at the end of a very bizarre ending for Mr. Blue. So Blue is dead. Gray is dead. Brown is dead. That leaves just Mr. Green somewhere out there in the wild. That's right, Mac. Uh, Garber is going to return to the command center. Traumatized for life by watching Mr. Blue fry himself. And he's given a list of possible suspects who used to work as train conductors. 78 names gets whittled down to nine, and Garber and Patron check out three of the names before hitting the jackpot with Mr. Green. Mr. Green maintains his innocence, but his sneezing from his cold that he's had all day tells a different story. So even though, uh, I don't know what kind of computers they're running in, in the 1970s, after Mr. Gray, Blue, and Brown were murdered, you know, Garber goes back to the station and Patron's like already got info on them. He's like, oh, we already ran their prints. He's like, yeah, he shows him uh, Hector Elizondo, Mr. Gray's like ID card. And he's like, here you go. And uh, turns out, you know, Mr. Gray, you know, he's they have his real name there and also his alias. His alias. Uh, I, I really wish I could remember his name now because his alias is Joe Welcome. What? <laughs> Joseph Welcome. <laughs> so- why? Why? <laughs> Joe Welcome. Joe Welcome. Like, Why? I have to imagine that's why they kicked him out of the mafia, because whenever he shot somebody, it was like, Joe Welcome. It's like, you have to stop doing that. I cannot hear you do that one more time. It was so weird out of the blue. It's like, I would have rather been like, uh, his alias is last name Jablomi, first name Haywood. <laughs> and then, <laughs> you know, Garber like, Haywood Jablomi. And then uh, Patron's like, uh, it's like, hey, uh, you know, maybe, uh, maybe after a couple beers and then they have a big laugh or something like that. It was just such a weird reference or something. I don't know. But yeah, they go looking for Mr. Green. Now we see Mr. Green back at his apartment. He's out of his disguise now. And his apartment is really depressing. And he throws, he empties the bag of money on his like grimy bed. And then he rolls around in it. But I guess they use too big of a bills because $250,000 does not look like that much money. It's like, you know, <laughs> imagine you put like 20 singles on your bed and rolled around and you're like, I'm rich. That was the kind of the energy this guy was giving. But then knock, knock, knock. Here's a knock on the door. And he's like, oh, no, it's, it's Garber and Patron. 
He's like, I got to hide this money. And so he sticks it in an oven, his oven, not an oven, his oven. This is a fun sequence. This is sufficiently tense in some spots because it's essentially Mr. Green trying to get away with it. You know, he's got, he's got the bag of money in the oven. And at one point Rico Patron wants to light his cigarette on the stove. So Mr. Green kind of rushes over to make sure that, that the oven doesn't get revealed. He sees a stack of money next to his bed. So he has to run over and kick the stack of money under his bed before Garber sees it. I like this. This is for not having a reason necessarily to root against Mr. Green. At this point in the movie, you kind of just want to step back and see if he's going to get away with it or not. He's certainly worth uh, $250,000. I'd be okay if he got it. But the problem with Mr. Green, the problem with Martin Balsam at the end of this movie is he won't shut the fuck up. Garber and, and Patron are just there to ask a few questions. All he has to do is play it cool. But as they're leaving, Mr. Green decides to spike the ball a little bit. He's like, hey, I don't work for you guys anymore. You can't come over here and harass me. Blah, blah, blah. Yakety smackety. But he talks too much. And he, at a certain point, sneezes, which he's been doing all day. He has a cold. And that's going to be the thing that gives him up. Like, if he had just stopped talking, this would have been fine. Yeah, because the whole time Garber's on the phone with Mr. Blue in the background, he kept hearing Mr. Green sneeze. And he would say, like, you know, Gazunai, Gazunai, like again and again. And so when Mr. Green sneezes here at the end, Garber says, Gazunai closes the door, but then opens the door. And Garber, Mathau, gives Mr. Green a look to say, I got you. It is a fun look. It is, you know, this is why you hire Walter Matthau for his gargoyle face. You want to, you want to be able to see it emote. Uh, it's just this. I don't even know how to explain it. It's sort of like a like a droopy dog look. Like, come on, boys, yeah. uh, and it's so terrific. Yeah, they freeze framed on it, right? Didn't they? I don't. I'm not quite sure if they did freeze frame or if he just held that look. But either way, it lingers in such a way that you're like, all right, we can we can wrap this movie up. Yeah, it, the look really was like, really, bitch. <laughs> it was like, it really was like a you dumb motherfucker. <laughs> just a great look. It wasn't like I got you. It was like, hey, stupid. Uh, yeah, he was. He was really. There was a, definitely a, a big chink of disappointment in that look, as well as just like you know some pity. He pitied the fool. Years before Mr. T made it made it uh, fashionable. I think he was disappointed that Green gave himself up. I think he I think there's a part of Garber that almost wanted Green to get away with it. And for Garber to have to come back in and be like, you couldn't have held that sneeze in. Now I got an, an entire night of paperwork. You son of a bitch. And as Mr. Green is headed for headed to Rikers for being an accessory to multiple murders. That is the end of the taking of Pelham 123. All right, David, how many markout moments, how many moms did you have while watching this movie? I had two markout moments. How about you? Uh, one, and it was a, it was an all-timer, though. David, is this someone's favorite movie? I assume so. You know, this movie was based on a book. This movie was based on a best-selling novel by John Gotti, G-O-D-E-Y, not John Gotti. But I have to imagine there were people who read this book, and they're like, oh, my God, they made a movie about this? I can't wait. And they were sufficiently happy with it. So I'll bet there's some fans. What do you think? I think if this is someone's favorite movie, that person does not have long to live because they're very old. So if you have a friend who loves this movie, you know, we we can't get time back, y'all. So spend some time with them, really. Just, you know, make sure that we make these moments last because uh, we're not going to get too many with these uh, these old timers anymore. You know what I mean? All right, David, time for punch-ups. We're the ultimate script doctors. <laughs> Everyone knows that. How would you fix this movie, David? How would you punch it up? 
Okay, my first one, I just mentioned that this was based on a book. Where's the cool dialogue? Where are where are the writer moments for this movie? Like, you've got Robert Shaw, who is one of the, the better monologists in 70s motion pictures. Uh, you've got Walter Matthau, who's great to play against. You've got Martin Balsam, who is, who is a terrific character actor. Like, let's get some snappy dialogue. Let's get some back and forth. Let's get some, you know, not kill lines maybe for 1974. But let's get some real digs, like some real fuck yous. I, I would have liked to have seen that or heard that, I suppose. But my big punch up for this, you know, this is action light. This is a mostly bloodless movie. And I'm fine with that. You know, if, if this movie is what it is, I'm okay with what it is. But I want some chaos. You know, we we hint at it when we see the crowds gathering outside of the subway tunnel when the mayor shows up with the money. We see a little bit of it with the the car chase, you know, trying to get the money to the subway station. If I could wish a bigger budget on this movie, I would spend it all on extras, really. Like, I want to see New York City devolving into chaos because, oh my God, someone took a subway car hostage. They're getting a million dollars out of it. Where's my million dollars? Like, I want New York City at its boiling point. I want to see it, like, on the brink of a riot. I thought that would have been a really easy punch up to make to make this movie feel a lot more important, if that makes sense. But I, I those are going to be my punch ups. What about you, Mac? You know, David, I do not have a punch up for this movie. I think it is fine as, as is. I will say that look, if if we're ever going to put out a you know a 4K collector's edition, I want to see a blood edit of this movie. So just go ahead, you know, using some uh, CGI, some digital effects, just just put in a lot more arterial sprays. Like for example, when Mister gray gets shot in the chest and he's like oh and you see like a little kind of you know a ketchup stain leaking out of his bullet hole i just want blood just pouring out of there and when uh the conductor gets uh shot i want a i want a close-up of his head just a river of blood just pouring out of his mouth it just i don't know maybe some blood explosions here or there we don't even know where they came from maybe or maybe a rat chomped another rat but let's just let's just have this thing soaking yeah, you're telling me nobody could get run over by a runaway subway car and just get splattered in half? Yeah, of course. I get that. Yeah, like when Garber is holding Frank, maybe cut to reaction shots of the other uh, transit police employees and just have blood just landing on their faces as if Garber is just turning uh, Frank's face into hamburger. Speaking of hamburgers, we don't have any at the Punch Mountain Video Store. David, will you please uh, transition with me into uh, the video store here? You bet I will. David, as you know, this is an all-action movie video store. We have three copies of The Taking of Pelham 123. So which shelf would you put this on? What subsection of action fits this movie? Subsections of action. Mac, my first copy is going to go in 70s action. I will not stop bringing movies for consideration for the mountain from the 70s. I love that decade, even though they're a little underwhelming action-wise. My second copy is going to go in heist action. I, I don't think we have heist movies yet, but let's start it. Let's, let's get that going. Third one's going to be matinee action. This is very much that 3 p.m. million dollar movie. You come home from school. It's a perfect afternoon movie. It's a perfect weekend movie. I I, I think matinee action is, is a pretty good fit for this one. I think those are all great. I would make an, an extra shelf called soft rock. Like, let's say you're dating somebody and whoever you're dating, they're just, uh, you know, they're just kind of a wet blanket. Uh, but you like them for other reasons. <laughs> and you're like, hey, let's go over an action movie. And that person's like, uh, do we have to? And I'm not putting a, that's a, um, a, a gender neutral impression right there. And you're like, oh, fine. Uh, you know, uh, you don't like seeing uh, heads being blown off. Uh, let, let's watch Taking a Pelham 1, 2, 3. Because it's great. It's a lot of fun. Even wet blankets will like it. 
All right, David, it's down to it. Time to reveal the position of taking a Pelham 1, 2, 3 on Punch Mountain, a.k.a. the definitive ranking of action movies. Before the mountain doth revealeth its judgmenteth, yes, uh, where would you place this movie? Even as someone who loves this movie, even as someone who, who is quite fond of it, I would have to place this very low. I'm looking at the other 70s action movies on this mountain. I think it's going to go uh, right at home in that area in the in the 30s, maybe even the 40s. No knock on this movie. It's a fun time. It is a great use of an hour 44 or whatever, but it's just not quite action heavy. I, I don't think we found that seminal 70s action movie yet. Uh, what, do you, what do you think, Mac? Yeah, great movie, super fun, super watchable. But in terms of it being an action movie, it did not bring it. And so it's probably going to be pretty low on the mountain. Even though, look, I give this movie, uh, if you're looking for something, you know, fun, great, you know, pacing and great performances, this is going to get, uh, you know, a highest recommendation for me. Oh, no, David, scurry like a, 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 a pizza rat because here come the rocks. They're falling off the face of the mountain. The golden letters are appearing, revealing the position of Pelham 123. It is number 45 toward the base of the mountain. That means... 43, the 2019 version of Charlie's Angels, followed by Pastor 57 and 44. Pelham 123 at 45, followed by Deadly Prey and Robot Jocks. A low position for a great movie. However, uh, you know, I, I think that makes sense in terms of being an action movie. But look, it doesn't mean that people uh, shouldn't, you know, go out and watch this film. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, it makes sense in the context of The Mountain. I am not sad about it. As long as people watch this movie, it's a, it's a hoot. It's a real fun time. It's underrated 70s action. It's good performances with good actors. You're going to have a fun time. Don't worry about its ranking on the mountain. At this point in the podcast, we'd normally do a, a call to action segment where we'd play some fun sounds and spotlight a deserving nonprofit. But today we want to touch upon what is happening in Gaza. Like any rational people, we are horrified at the loss of life, the escalating cruelty of denying humanitarian aid to the displaced and the injured and the dying and what appear to be war crimes against the people of Gaza. For the rest of the year after every episode, Punch Mountain will make a small donation to the Palestine Children's Relief Fund. The PCRF is the primary humanitarian organization in Palestine. They deliver crucial, life-saving medical relief and humanitarian aid on the ground. For more information or to donate directly to them, visit PCRF.net. All right, folks, that will do it for another edition of Punch Mountain. Don't forget to add us on social media. We're on Instagram at Punch Mountain or drop us a line at punchmountain at gmail.com. You can also join us on Discord. The link is in our link tree. The link tree is in our Instagram. MacBlakeComedy.com is your source for Mac standup. Next week, it's our Discord poll winner. You didn't know we had one, did you? Well, if you joined our Discord, you would know it. So next week from 2011, directed by Zack Snyder, we're doing Sucker Punch. I am looking forward to it. I hope you are too. We'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. Bye.